Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded by WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. I think many of us who go into the teaching profession do so with an inherent desire of wanting to help students. But if you think about it from the student's perspective, they encounter not only us, but all of their peers and as well, um, many of the rules and procedures that are part of the educational system. What happens when those experiences actually are typified by trauma. That's going to be the topic of our discussion today. My guest is Dr. Leanne Gray, a forensic and, cl- and clinical psychologist who writes and speaks on the topic of educational trauma. She is the author of the book, Educational Trauma, Examples from Testing to the School to Prison Pipeline, which is the 2019 imprint of Paul Gray McMillan. Dr. Gray, thank you so much for joining us today. Mm, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be with you. Absolutely. I, I, I want to start. I mean, I, I you know, your book is so intriguing, and and of course, we'll only be able to scratch the surface of it um, in our talk this afternoon. But I want you to start by giving the listeners sort of an idea of how it is that you define the term educational trauma, and what some of the things are that you think typify that in the experiences of students. <laughs> Okay, so the definition of educational trauma is the unintentional um, and inadvertent harm that is perpetrated and perpetuated in schools. And I see the victims as being anyone who interacts a school. So it could be students, teachers, parents, staff, and ultimately the communities that are intended to benefit from the common good of education are also impacted. Um, I see there being four types of educational trauma that affect students. In C2 educational trauma would be the types of traumas that happen to students in schools, but aren't actually related to their education. So school shootings would be an example of an in situ educational trauma. XC2 educational trauma are the ones that happen outside of school and negatively impact student performance. And COVID-19 would be an example of the biggest XC2 educational trauma I can think of. Mm-hmm. There are two more types. Uh, I've outlined a spectrum of educational traumas called spectral educational trauma with the testing Um, being on the mildest end for the anxiety pressures that are created. And the school to prison pipeline would be on the most severe end of that spectrum. And in the middle, we have things like bullying and teacher evaluations, the use of stimulant medication to treat inattention and psychomotor agitation in the classroom. And then finally, the fourth type of educational trauma is social ecological educational trauma. And these are the educational traumas that stem from um, socio-cultural historical events, political um, ideologies, legislation, culture. Um, There's a wide range of influences from the macro level all the way down to the micro level being the the person themselves. And so that, that is a broader term um, describing educational traumas and sometimes overlaps Mm -hmm. with the other three. And and I would assume that, you know, for a a specific example, racism or any other form of oppression could be an example of that social and ecological um, area of trauma. Is that correct? Yes, it would. It would also be an example of an XC2 educational mm-hmm. trauma, and it could be an NC2 educational trauma, as well as a spectral educational trauma, depending on how it is played out and impacts the student or other person. 
Now, you intentionally use the word trauma, um, and you, of course, bring um, the training of a psychologist uh, into this. Why do you use that term? Because I think that obviously shapes how we should be viewing this conversation. Right. So as a psychologist, my earliest training was on things like learning and motivation and behavior and cognition, the, the building blocks and basics of education as well. And then as I began treating students in my community and community mental health, I noticed that um, they were showing signs of trauma. And these signs could be anything in mental health um, that is like in the um, mood disorders, so depression and anxiety, behavioral problems, school refusal, many of these things could be explained by trauma. And the degree of trauma that was influencing the um, culture at the time was really rather remarkable to me. So it's my background as a psychologist certified in uh, EMDR, which is a trauma treatment that led me to see the little t traumas that were playing out in education. And what are little t traumas? These are slights, humiliations, embarrassments, failures disappointments that impact a person and stay with them. They build on each other, they're cumulative, and they differ from big T traumas like assault, oppression, discrimination, natural disasters, abuse, etc. So uh, let me give an example and have you um, analyze this if this is an appropriate example. So I remember very vividly when I was in kindergarten, that um, I was part of the group of three or four students that went out every uh, couple days to the speech therapist. Everyone knew why we were going, but of course we were doing that because the teacher had identified that we were not pronouncing some words correctly. Is that an example of what you would call as a little t trauma potentially? Um, and, and, and as you answer that, I also want you to talk about the fact that you say that this can be unintentional and people trying to be well-intentioned, but it still results in trauma. Kind of unpack that a little bit for me. So the example you give about a kindergartner being pulled out of class for speech therapy doesn't quite ring as a small t trauma to me, mm -hmm. though I can mm -hmm. understand how it could be embarrassing to a student to be singled out and to have other students know and recognize that they're having difficulties. So it could fall into being a small t trauma for that student, but we'd have to look at it in, through the course of the student's lifetime to understand you know, how it impacted that particular student. In general, that example does not fall into my topology and mm -hmm. the reason why is because the intention there is to support uh, an identified need in the student mm -hmm. and the support seems appropriate and the administration of the support in small groups um, during the school day for better and for worse is appropriate and has been adopted successfully in schools all over North America. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate you teasing that out. I think that helps um, helps me at least understand some of the some of the distinctions that I'm sure get blurry at times. But but I appreciate that distinction. Um, go back to the well intentioned. So you you explicitly note in your definition of of educational trauma that it could be well intentioned but still have a negative outcome. What do you mean by that? 
So I believe that people go into the teaching profession because they like children, they care about children, they want to promote their health, well-being, and positive development. In that regard, people become educators with good intentions. Unfortunately, intention is not enough. We need to examine behavioral outcomes. Mm -hmm. And in general, I say this across the board regardless of the topic it doesn't have to apply to education people have good intentions but their actions and behaviors don't always reflect that and oftentimes when people find out that they've done something wrong they'll say wait i didn't intend that so when i started to identify education as being traumatic to people and i would speak about it um some people would say but wait we didn't intend that and yes of course i understand that nobody intends this and the legislation that we have in place right now was intended to lead to positive in outcomes however the actions that result from decisions, whether it's legislative or other, those actions can be extremely problematic. And I give the example of vehicular manslaughter. So a person doesn't intend generally to kill somebody with their car, but sometimes it happens. And so that's an example of where the behavior or action is more important than the intention and that mm -hmm. the person is ultimately still responsible for their behaviors and actions, even if they mean well at heart. And education is really a big example of a very large group of people intending well and not delivering. One of the terms that you point to in your writings and, and other uh, places where I've, I've seen you speak online, you use the term poisonous pedagogy, I think, as a way of sort of capturing this. Can you explain what that means? So uh, poisonous pedagogy is drawn from the work of Alice Miller in the early 80s. And much of my work is actually just pulling together information over the last hundred years and giving an overarching view of all of that information, which is well documented. Alice Miller describes poisonous pedagogy as doing harm unintentionally to children while thinking one is doing well, doing good for the child. And this specifically plays out in pedagogies that are passed down from generation to generation and are actually quite maladaptive, but the language around those practices has been euphemized and sanitized, keeping the practices very much alive, despite the fact that they have negative effects on students. And I think that corporal punishment might be one of those examples. Mm -hmm. It's still legal in schools in about 19 states. In, in your book, um, you, you give several uh, poignant examples of the concepts that you've been talking about so far. One of the ones that struck me initially um, was the story of Jesus. Um, uh, and I wondered if you could sort of recount that story and particularly give attention to how it was an example of a, of, of a well-intentioned behavioral application that was inappropriate for the actual condition that the student was affected by. Yeah, the story of Jesus is a good example of um, a lot of systems coming together to support a child who belongs to a marginalized community. Jesus was a child of a single mother and she had several children and they really needed to be in school every single day because they received two of their meals at school and otherwise it was difficult for this mother to feed her children. Mm. Despite the... Um, the negative impacts that they had suffered in their lives, the mother had uh, arranged for 
extensive services for Jesus. And by the time that I met him, he was, I think, about 11 years old. And I was assessing him to see what he needed in school to be as successful as he can be. And so I was uh, I was observing him in class one day, and I saw that his knees would collapse, and he would fall to the floor, and it was as if all of his muscles immediately gave out, and then he would collect himself, pull himself right back up, and keep going. I had never seen this before, mm-hmm. ever. And the boy had been um, diagnosed with autism and was receiving applied behavioral analysis, which uses behavioral training to increase prosocial behaviors. And um, I didn't think this was one of those behaviors that is germane to autism because it wasn't a complex stereotyped uh, ritualistic mannerism. It was this full body collapse. So I turned to an occupational therapist that I knew worked with autism and I said, have you ever seen this before? And she said, yeah, it sounds like a petit mal seizure. And at that moment, I flashed to Jesus's history. At 14 months, he had been in the care of a daycare program and or a babysitter and a bookcase had fallen on him. Hmm. And he had a traumatic brain injury. So actually, what the school had misdiagnosed as autism and what they thought was a complex stereotypic mannerism was a petit mal seizure. And so when I reported this to the team, they sent him to a neurologist and he was immediately put on anti-seizure medicine. But the use of applied behavioral analysis in this case was incredibly damaging because we can't use any behavioral trainings to reduce seizures. Mm -hmm. So how pervasive do you believe that educational trauma is? I mean, do you think that every student experiences this to some degree? Um, Do you think that it's worldwide? I mean, how would you sort of describe the scope of the problem? Yes, I think the scope is global. I think that the United States is leading the way with the school to prison pipeline being the very worst example. And we don't see that replicated in other countries. I do think that all children um, and um, all students, all staff are being affected, parents to varying degrees. So students in higher income communities are probably the least affected and communities, families, staff, and lower income communities, along with students, are probably more affected. So I, I'm thinking back, I mean, I, I completely agree with your premise on that. Um, I'm thinking back to the college admission scandals that happened, it seems like years ago now, but I think if I'm not mistaken, it was about a year and a half ago. Um, do you think that's a, that's a manifestation of sort of the type of educational trauma that might take place in a much more affluent um, sort of setting. Um, Does that have any resonance with you? Yeah, I don't see the college scandal as an example of educational trauma, nor is it a byproduct of educational trauma. That's an exclusive feature of wealth. Yeah. Okay. That's a separate application procedure for people who have access and means. Sure. Um, How do you believe that the experience of educational trauma, you know, going back to your, your, your assumption that, that all of us experience it to some degree, how do you think that ends up impacting a student's ability to process, retain and use information? So educational trauma affects a student's ability to remember and to 
draw from their memory banks and as a result it becomes hard to apply and demonstrate learning. It's difficult to use critical thinking and analyze. There's a lot more to it, but that's a fair summation. And do you think that the effects of this is sort of linearly related so that the more trauma a student experiences, obviously the less um, of an ability they would have to be able to effectively process information? Is that a fair assumption? Yes, precisely. And the more trauma that a student has, the more likely they are to present with symptoms that mimic other disorders, perhaps learning disorders, mm -hmm. uh, processing disorders, auditory or visual, for example. Um, these kinds of things may not be actual learning difficulties, but secondary to trauma. Same with the, the vast prevalence of anxiety and depression also mm -hmm. point to that same end. Throughout, um, especially the midsection of your book, you, you you talk about different examples or or manifestations or ways of operationalizing what educational trauma is. I, I want to have you briefly talk about some of these. So one of your chapters talks about the issue of play, uh, and specifically you point to the fact that play has been diminished within the experiences of students. Why do you think that has happened, and what do you think the effects of less play actually is with respect to how it affects students? Yeah, play is a very serious concern of mine with regard to learning because it is uh, beneficial to the learning process and it has been reduced over the last 20 years in ch children's lives. And I think it's contributing to their detriment socially, emotionally, in terms of communication and academic performance. So we know that when children are allowed to play in early childhood, they use problem solving and conflict resolution. They learn communication skills and collaboration, all of which are unaffected by adults often. But we, in the last 20 years, have reduced that type of unstructured free play for children of all ages. And it's mainly, I think, because around 2000, um, students in the United States who were 15 years old were not performing well on global assessments compared to other countries. And as a result, this concerned educators greatly. And so we had a higher rate of standardization and increased testing over the last 20 years to bring up the global competitive competitiveness of the emerging labor market in the United States. Mm -hmm. This had the result of decreasing play and increasing the amount of time spent on testing and standardized curricula to increase the competitiveness, obviously, of the students. When play, recess, art, and PE are reduced for those reasons, it results in students having less ability to communicate, cope, collaborate, uh, and solve problems. Mm -hmm. And we see all of those problems at almost epidemic levels in students today. They're socially anxious. They don't want to communicate if it's not in writing electronically. And they're very, very depressed and um, using more substances than before and also um, engaging in suicidal behaviors. Mm -hmm. So that is the result of less play. But we also know in the arena of mental health that play has long been a treatment for people of all ages, including adults. And so the more we let people play, not of all ages, again, not only will they be learning important skills, but they'll be healing the effects of trauma just by doing so. One of the other issues that you pointed to was issues of sexuality. Can you expand on that? 
Uh, yes, uh, my subspecialty is in the area of LGBTQ uh, people, mm-hmm. and uh, in writing a book on LGBTQ youth, I noticed that there is a dearth of understanding among uh, professionals, educators, and mental health professionals in what the difference is between sexual orientation and gender identity. Generally, health education in the United States includes um, p- possibly abstinence-only education. Others will um, provide education around sexual health. But generally, there's not a lot of discussion on the range of sexual sexualities and the, the, the ways in which gender identity is separate and also affected by uh, and and related to gender. For example, when a person says they're gay, it generally implies that they are interested in people of the same gender. When they say they're straight, it generally implies that they're interested in people of a different gender. Um, and these are ways in which gender and sexuality are related, but very, very different. The 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 lack of awareness of some of the nuances around sexuality and gender identity have led to oppression for trans people, non-binary people. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I believe that we need to start introducing some of these topics as young as preschool in age-appropriate ways. And the, those books have already been written. There are plenty mm-hmm. of picture books to show uh, preschool, kindergarten, elementary school-aged children what it means to have a two-parent household with the same gender. Mm-hmm. You know, just something like that would make a really big difference. But ultimately, I think sexual educa- sexual orientation and gender identity need to be included in education throughout the lifespan. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to turn to talking about some of the effective and best practices. But, but, but before we turn uh, to that topic, one last issue that I would like for you to talk about in a bit more detail is this notion of the school to prison pipeline um, that, that is mentioned, you know, you mentioned already, but it's also um, in several chapters of your book. Can you talk about what that means um, in, from your perspective and, and, and how it happens? Yeah, the ACLU defines the school-to-prison pipeline as a pathway that sends students, generally students of color and LGBTQ students, towards criminal justice as a remedy for problems faced in school. And as a result of that interaction with criminal justice in the school years, a person is set on a trajectory towards the prison industrial complex for many years after. And according to Rios, an author, he suggests that this puts uh, students, particularly um, black and brown boys, up for certain uh, social death because they wind up in a parallel universe where they don't have access to housing, employment, etc. So throughout your book, you, um, and particularly as each chapter unfolds, you talk about best practices uh, that can attempt to counteract educational trauma. I want to talk about some of those in, in a little bit of detail, but but I guess the first concept is, is the idea of having a school that is more trauma-sensitive. How can schools become more trauma-sensitive? I mean, to hear you explain what educational trauma is, it's very much baked into the experience. Uh, in a very systematic and, and perhaps in some cases even hidden way. So how can schools start to become more sensitive to this idea of educational trauma? 
Yes, even though some of these issues around and causing educational trauma are baked into the systems, there's still things that people can do. And when you bring up schools being more trauma sensitive, there's they're already on their way. There are many schools that have developed a trauma sensitive approach. There's a movement that is promoting trauma-informed care and trauma sensitivity, not only in schools, but in healthcare organizations, corporations, and, and other places as well. So that movement is well underway, and those people are doing that work. There are books that have been ri written, and there are people doing those trainings. In the hundreds of solutions that I've published, I recommend at the very um, min most minimal level, just increasing uh, empathy empathy towards students, empathy towards teachers, empathy towards all the people who interact schools. And the way we can do that is just by listening, mm -hmm. listening more, more deeply and hearing what people have to say. And um, there are professional development trainings that I can do that other people do to increase empathy and social emotional well-being, learning, et cetera, skills. And those things are a first step. But ultimately, I believe that we need to have more democratic pedagogies in schools. Mm -hmm. And we would probably benefit from seeing design thinking incorporated in schools. It already has been incorporated in many schools, but it hasn't proliferated quite the way I, I think it needs to. Yeah, I'm a, a big fan of John Dewey. So I totally agree with you about Having having more of a democratic approach to the way that we teach and learn. So, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is this idea of empathy. And in one of your chapters, you you talk about the use of empathy circles, which I've I've learned about before. Is an empathy circle something that a teacher could implement, or would that have to be done in more of a school wide basis in order for it to be effective? A teacher can do it with their um, class alone or on the school level. Of course, it'll be more effective when there is top-down approval and the entire culture has an opportunity to be influenced by empathy circles. But if, all, if only a teacher could do it in their classroom, then that would benefit um, that class and all the people they touch forevermore. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about um, the latter half of of, of of your book is the way in which the concepts of design thinking, empathy, democratic education, all sort of fit together into a sense of a whole. Um, and, and you don't often see that, but, but you did a very good job of, of, of articulating how all of those things work in harmony. You know, one of the questions that I asked myself is if Dr. Gray was, uh, designing a school and she was the leader of the school what would a day look like in your school and and what would that experience of the student be like yeah dr gray did that she did that in 2014 2015 and school days were really fun and freewheeling let me tell you so we had a very very small budget we didn't have a building and we didn't even have liability insurance so parents had to join their students um in this experiment and we met a Three times a week we had field trips, we met in um, libraries, we met in homes and parks, wherever we could find, and we followed the interests of the our small pod. Who would have known it was so prescient for the time we're now in as a pandemic with learning pods evolving, but we were doing that then. And our um, pod had um, artistic talents. So several of the students were not only interested in art, but extremely talented. As a result, the learning that our uh, group did in the Connect Group School was very focused on art, art history, um, all aspects of art, 
but we didn't do as much emphasis on, say, science and technology, because that really wasn't where the students' gifts and talents lay. So we were, we were focusing on that. We also allowed the students to join with us in developing the school model. We use design thinking pr practices to not only teach them how to problem solve with empathy using multidisciplinary skills, um, but we, we also showed them how to think about what schools should be and what they needed. And in so doing, they became our um, collaborators and they helped us do hiring and management and fundraising and policy development. And it was a really robust experiment that we we were very fond of but we, it was unsustainable because we had no money <laughs> <laughs> it does come down to that at some level doesn't it every level <laughs> so so the, the the pandemic that's going on right now um I, obviously you've already mentioned that that's uh, you know one of the um foremost traumas that students are experiencing one that was um, unimaginable obviously i feel like um all of us are struggling to figure out how to talk about the pandemic with our students um, and to recognize the fact that it's happening, affecting all of us, um, but to do so in a way that doesn't perpetuate or even accentuate that trauma. What advice do you have for teachers that are trying to be honest with their students about what is happening, but at the same time, not making it worse? Right. So in my book, I, I wrote a critical incident stress debriefing protocol for schools. And so I have already instructed how to do it. But to be very brief, it's just about teachers opening up a discussion and saying, well, what's going on and listening, mm -hmm. really, truly listening. And the beauty of empathy circles is that when a person is listening, they reply back, not with new information or a uh, reframe, but rather they just reflect what the person says mm -hmm. and utilizing that skill to debrief from the stress of a critical incident is it can be very healing for people of all ages. I guess the last question that I have, um, you know, in, in reading your book, um, and, and really thinking about the multifaceted nature of what educational trauma is. I mean, you know, there, there is a part of me that can leave that reading thinking this is a real uphill battle and uh, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to make meaningful improvements because of the way in which so many things are stacked against students and teachers and schools right now. What is it that gives you hope? Um, moving forward that we can start to crack away at some of the forces that cause these traumas? Yeah, it has looked like an uphill battle at times. I've been looking at this problem for over 10 years, and there are times where I felt very small and helpless and powerless, and I don't feel that way anymore. And frankly, in 2016, when uh, Donald Trump was elected president, it was a very big turning point for me. And I looked around and I thought to myself, okay, now everyone around me is going to start to see the things that I do. And with COVID-19 in the last year, I really feel that... Um, some of the things that I presented in my book on educational trauma, where it was maybe obscure a few years ago, now is very much uh, common parlance. And that's the shift that gives me hope. Actually, that things have gotten worse, so much worse, is what gives me hope. Hmm. We have no choice but to get better, right? Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I, I so appreciate um, the opportunity to read your book. I'll, I'll let you know that my daughter, who is 
um, a teacher ed person at Ohio University. She's a student going through that program. And actually, interestingly, she'll be doing her student teaching in a democratically uh, in a school in, in Athens County that enacts a democratic philosophy. I'll be passing your book along to her because I know that it will impact her significantly. But I appreciate the way that you made this information so accessible uh, to not only me, but I think anyone that picks it up. And it is one of those things where when you read it, you start to look at all of your own practices differently. You start to look at your institution's practices differently. Uh, and, um, and and so I really appreciate the opportunity to have this dialogue with you and to learn more about what it is that you've been exploring. Oh, thank you, Scott. And likewise, I really appreciate you taking the time to read it and to self-reflect and to think about what some of these concepts mean for the greater good of all. I really appreciate you having this podcast and sharing this information, and I'm grateful to you for having me here today. Absolutely. Dr. Leanne Gray is a forensics and, cl and clinical psychologist who writes and speaks on the topic of educational trauma. Her book, Educational Trauma Examples from Testing to the School and Prison Pipeline, is a 2019 imprint of Paul Gray McMillan. Of course, we will have that linked in the text accompanying this podcast. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters. Remember that we are produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org slash listen. We're also available through all of the popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and of course, NPR One. You can always feel free to contact us through our Facebook page to search for Teaching Matters Podcast on Facebook and reach out with a direct message. Our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth, your host. Have a great day.